I need to know everything. Who and the what and the where I need everything. Hello and welcome to JK Plus One. I am not your host, PTF. Uh, PTF emailed me this morning. And you also, I don't know if you listened to the other podcast. He got mad at me for making fun of him for calling people that don't have do not disturb set up on their phone. You know, remember that I did that little rant about Pete calling at three in the morning and then thinking everyone else has their phone on do not disturb. He like tried to call me out on another podcast about it and like, and like act like I didn't know about the do not disturb button or the focus button, but I had to take him and uh, firmly place him back into his boomer category and let him know that I was aware, but I just thought it was funny. I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin, and uh, we are back. We're wrapping up the year. We're, we're going to finish fast and furious. We got one uh, for you uh, right here. We got, we, we, we've, we're going to keep them rolling throughout the year, through the holidays, give you some good traveling content to listen to. Uh, before I jump too far ahead, I want to thank everyone who sends me notes uh, when these shows come out and uh, says really nice things. Um, it's encouraging. It feels good. It makes me feel like, uh, that, that we're doing uh, something fun here. It also is a nice note to pass along to guests and to let them know that, that people were, uh, in, enjoy the conversation we had. So I appreciate that. Please continue to do that. Um, you know, retweet, tweet, share, follow all those things we've talked about. I want to thank our friends at Qatar racing, uh, for the support of JK plus one. It's been an outstanding year. A lot of fun. We, we, we feel like we've gotten a lot accomplished this year and, uh, we're looking forward to doing it again in 2024. Uh, this is an exciting one. This is a fun one. And you know me, I, I, I like, uh, two things when I do JK plus one, I like the, the fun stories that, that you get the kind of behind the scenes from people. And I also love the kind of educational where I feel smarter than when I, uh, than when I got on the podcast and then, you know, after I got off, it's, it's fun. This episode, in my opinion, does both. Uh, I check in, uh, with my friend, uh, Jose Santos, Jr. Santos Inc. Right. The, uh, the, the jockey agent who has found a way to have 97 riders and do it effectively and efficiently, not really 97. We'll talk to him about how many he actually does have. Uh, but he also tells one of my favorite stories we've had on JK plus one, which is the first hand story of funny side and, uh, how that experience was for him with his father riding. So, uh, longer than usual intro, I'll get the heck out of here and, uh, get to my friend Jose Santos jr. Santos Inc. What's going on? Yeah, what's going on, man? Everything good? Yeah, dude. I get stressed out sometimes when I got like, you know, six races to look at. You got 78 jockeys. Um, I don't know how you do it. Well, I get I get stressed out when I don't have like 78 races to look at. That means things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. Uh, it's funny, man. Like, you know, when when I first started kind of getting, you know, having to talk about my process in terms of handicapping and stuff, one of the things that I always would kind of talk about and say, which I, I think applies to you, I'm assuming, but I'm asking, is that like, I just think that my, like my generation, our generation, I know you're a little bit younger than I am, but like our generation, I think that we have learned how to take lots of different things, lots of different information streams and process them because we've gotten used to that. We grew up like that. We grew up, you know, having a conversation on a headset while playing an action shooting video game while texting right. a girl that we like, you know what I mean? Like I, my oh, brain yeah. can multitask. Do, do you think that has a lot to do with your ability to have as many riders as you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, I think that's kind of like you said, everybody in our generation, just, you know, we, uh, we're part of the growing up with the technology, you know, and learning how to pay attention to multiple things at one time. And uh, it's definitely probably one of the biggest tools I have, you know, I'd say versus some of the other people I'm working with. And now that younger agents are coming into the game, you know, I think we'll see a lot more people doing what I'm doing right now, but it's, it's definitely a huge part of it. I mean, I, I've got to be able to pay attention to multiple things at one time and actually know and comprehend what's going on with that. And, you know, I grew up on computers and video games. And like you said, texting girls that you thought were cute. So <laughs> it's definitely, uh, it's definitely all I had to do it. And I, I'm definitely loving what I'm doing. You know, for, for those who don't fully understand, I mean, most people that listen to this podcast probably do understand uh, your role. Um, the, the elevator pitch, when someone asks you what you do for a living or the, I call it the Uber pitch when you're in the Uber on the way to the airport and someone's, Oh, what are you, you going for business or pleasure? I'm going for business. Oh, what do you do? What is your answer? If you're pretty close to having to get out of the car? 
I tell them that I manage jockeys across America. And there it is. That's easy. Either, yeah, yeah. I manage jockeys across America. Uh, you know, really, and that, that that entails all of it: booking their mounts, workers in the morning. You know, making sure communication is going well with the trainers, uh, making sure my communication with them is going well. A lot of the times, communicating that with them about races coming up. You know, how I see the race. You know, different different uh, things like that. Uh, how relationships are going on the backside. People I want to see them targeting and making sure they see because clearly I'm, I'm not on every backside every morning. You know, a lot of it's me sending us, you know, a list like, Hey, this is who I've been communicating with. This is who I'd like you to communicate with more, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of in the background, you know, Hey, what about this horse for this race? You know, texting back and forth with the trainer and the way I've kind of got it set up. I, I need the jockeys there, you know, promoting themselves with those trainers. Now, for those, and, and I'm not asking for specifics here, but just for the uninitiated, as far as like compensation in your role, so is is the is it worked out where basically you get a percentage of the purse earnings from the rider, and it basically is that, and and, and nothing more, yeah. nothing less, or is no, it can it be more, more complex? Less. No, uh, that's that's it. Just whatever whatever they're bringing in every week. I, I get my share of that and it's kind of a universal share. Every, every agent works for 25%. I'm sure there's some certain cases where they're working for 30, uh, but all the riders I work with, it's, it's 25% and that's, that's where it ends right there. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the roster. Um, who, who do you have? Where do you have them? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's actually I'm super I'm super happy with what it is right now. Every rider I work with is really really enjoyable to work with, and you know it's it's not always the case. You know sometimes you gotta work in situations with people that you don't necessarily get along with because that's part of life. But I'm super lucky. Uh, right now I've got Julian. He's at Oakland. Julian Leperu. I've got Rayla Gutierrez over at the fairgrounds. Uh, I've I've been working with David Cabrera for the last five years. He's out right now. Uh, when he does resurface, he'll probably be at Sam Houston. He had a snapped femur back in September, and he's just, you know, in recovery mode. Uh, Emmanuel Esquivel, he's over at Oakland right now for the first time. Uh, I've got Fernando Haro over at Tampa. Uh, Leandro Gonsalves, Freddie Manrique, and Jermaine Bridgemahan are all currently at Remington, and they'll move over to Sam Houston. Uh, I've got a rider, Alexander Castillo, over at the fairgrounds as well. Uh, he's at the same track as Ray Lou, so I've got a total of 10 as it stands. Adam Biscizzo too. And he's also at a uh, Turfway. So tell me which one you hate more. Do you hate <laughs> No, not one of your not your riders. No, no, which okay. one of these things do you, no, <laughs> That that actually be a hilarious question I was too. like throw it out there. <laughs> yeah, which one do you hate the most? Um no, what what thing do you hate more? Do you would you rather make a phone call to a trainer that you're going to spin him? or to one of your riders that you have to take them off for one of your other riders? Which one, which, which call do you hate the least? Ooh, that's, not a, that's not a call I ever really make the second one. To be oh, quite good. honest. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, that's kind of part of the business. You know, if, if one of the riders is going to lose them out and the trainer's not happy with that rider and they're not unhappy with me, I mean, I'm going to try to retain that business, you know, for one of two reasons. I mean, it's somebody I was already working with the trainer wise, you know, and, I don't think it should necessarily necessarily affect, you know, one of the other riders I represent because one rider got fired. And also if I'm still dealing with that trainer, I mean, in most cases they're going to forgive you at some point, you know, so hopefully it just circles back around to them, but uh, it's, it's never fun spinning trainers. You know, sometimes it's just part of the business and it has to happen. And uh, you know, I, I'm super understanding when a trainer has got to make a change last minute with me as well. It happens. And, that's, that's part of it. We all got someone to answer to. So I, you know, I understand that. You know, look, I mean, I know you perfect. I know you're no, I'm sorry. You haven't perfected it. I know you're in the process of perfecting it. We're always, you know, trying to grow and figure things out. And, and I'm sure that you, you, you've learned a lot of lessons having a, a handful of riders at times. What are some of the things, your biggest obstacles um, outside of just the the sheer volume of how many riders you have, is there any obstacles that you have that maybe a, a Ron Anderson or a or a Ruben Munoz or a, or a John Panagot might not have in terms of 
of, of, you know, outside of the volume, just a, just a weird quirk of having, you know, 10 guys or nine guys or eight guys or whatever it is. Yeah. You know, really, I, I think the thing I've run into the most that's kind of started to move away is my age, you know, I, I, doing business with people who uh, are, have been in the game for longer than I've been alive, you know, in a lot of cases, you know, I, I could see where, and, you know, I'm also trying to do it in a different way than the agents that they've dealt with in the past are doing it. So now, you know, I'm kind of a young guy trying to switch things up. Uh, definitely have run into a little bit of static with that, but I feel like that's really changed a lot in the last two years. And that, that really was, you know, my biggest uh, issue I was running into, I feel like, you know, the, the concept of, well, you know, he's young, he's doing something new. No one's really done it this way. What makes him think that he's going to be able to do it this way and it's going to be successful? You know, when I when I first started attempting this, you know, having multiple jockeys in multiple locations, I felt like that was the narrative a lot. And uh, fortunately, we've, we've grown since that narrative began. And fortunately, a lot of the riders have been successful in that process. And I think uh, I think that's kind of dissipating a little bit. Uh, so how many, uh, how many riders would you take on? How many what? I'm sorry. How many riders would you take on? Uh, I'm, I really, I really haven't put a number in my mind where I would cap it at, you know, uh, really it just however, however many that I can have while being successful at it. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to take on somebody and not do well with them, you know, because they're, they're relying on me. You know, these people have families and, you know, lives that they have to finance, you know, and that's a lot of it's relying on the job that I can do for them. You know, I mean, of course, it relies on the job they can do for themselves out there in the morning and in the afternoon as well. But as we all know, I mean, they don't have the horse under them. It's not going to happen. I mean, no, no jockey is going to make a horse run faster than it's supposed to run. So if they don't have the animal to do that, that's that comes back on me is the way I see it. And uh, right now I'm at 10 and I'm not overwhelmed with it. I feel extremely comfortable with it. And I if I had a situation where I could take on a jockey at a different circuit and I could see it being successful, I would feel like I have the room to do so and it wouldn't be overbearing. You know, I'm, I'm lucky where I have a team behind me that helps me as well when it comes to information gathering that I can oversee the information and then begin to make out contact with the people who I need to contact to get those mounts and uh yeah I, I really I really don't feel overwhelmed at all I, d- I definitely feel like more can be taken on just has to be the right situation um one piece of technology that if you didn't have it tomorrow morning when you woke up your job would be extremely extremely difficult my telephone for sure the cell phone I'm on I'm I don't know how many texts and phone calls I'm firing off every day, but it's a lot. It's a lot. And uh, without that, I mean, I, that, that's, that's such a main part of it is being able to contact all these people. Of course, you know, my computer is super important and the third manager and my iPad to write down all my notes in, but without the phone, I, you know, I'm, I'm essentially useless. So hopefully we don't run into some kind of apocalypse where I run out of a cell phone usage because I will be out of business. <laughs> Well, if, if if you don't have if you if, if there's an apocalypse and there's a cell phone problem, they're probably they're the the race at Oakland's probably not going to fill. Probably not filling. You're right about that. I don't know. Pat Pope's pretty good. <laughs> if there's an apocalypse and I had to put my money on someone filling a card, I'm putting my money on Pat Pope. Oh, that's funny. Um, so that that's a question I'll I, I will say for a little bit later, but I'm going to ask you if. If, uh, if you were the, the, the ruler of racing, uh, what would your condition book look like? But we'll come back to that. Um, w- now, what, what is the most important, I don't want to say website, because I, I, I don't want to keep it that broad, but like, where do you find yourself spending the most time, w- you know, w- what, you know, in the condition book and in, 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 in workouts and uh, where do you feel like you spend the most time and the most, what's the most efficient use of your time? In, uh, in generating business for your riders? It's definitely Thorough Manager. TMRacingData.com, 100%. I, I look at charts on there. I look at trainer's inventory on there, uh, the amounts that my riders have had, any rider really, because you know, if I'm 
I'm not only paying attention to the horses I'm riding, I'm also paying attention to what everybody else is riding and trying to see where maybe a rider could get into a situation where they're jammed up with two horses going into the same race. And I can try to figure out, you know, which way they might be trying to go, maybe just ask for both of them and see how it plays out. So uh, I can go through workout tabs there. I can look at, uh, I, don't, I don't really use their PPs to look at races, but you technically can. I, I don't really like to do it. I'd rather just go on DRF and I buy the sheets at pretty much all the tracks that I work at and look at that as well, the rags and sheets. Um, I can look at pedigree on there as far back into 1992. I mean, it's, and then sometimes I just nerd out and I'll look up horses that I remember from when I was a child, you know? So I spend, I spend a lot of time on, on thorough manager, a lot of time. Back to nerding out. I mean, I, I think that one of the things uh, nerding out and, and looking at old horses when you were a child, I think that an interesting part of, of your career is that, you know, I think there's a lot of ex riders who became agents because they had a lot of connections and they understand uh, what the riders go through. And, and so it's a good, it's a, it's a nice synergy. But the other thing too, that, that you have is that you grew up in a household uh, in a family full of riders. So you obviously understand that, that connection, but you also grew up around the racetrack. Um, tell me a little bit about your your kind of your upbringing in the sport and, and and did you kind of you know when you raised your hand when you were you know 12 years old they said what do you want to be when you grow up did you say i want to be a jockey's agent no i was jockey i wanted to be a jockey so bad uh but yeah growing up i was super lucky i mean my dad took me everywhere he never held back uh fully immersed me in horse racing from the very beginning my very first win photo I was eight days old. My dad won the Jim Dandy on Unaccounted for at Saratoga. So, I mean, I was at the racetrack from day one. Uh, my mom always tells the story. I was six months old and my dad had the races on the TV and he stepped out and I was in that little, you know, the little hopper thing the babies get in. And they said when they came back in, I was hopping up and down at the screen like I was riding a horse. And uh, I mean, I, that's the only thing I wanted to do with my entire life was be a jockey from as long as I could remember. And my dad would take me out with him to the racetrack in the morning on the weekends. You know, I, I had my helmet on and my vest and I'd walk around the track in jockey silks and pants. Like, uh, like you see Rocco Joseph doing Safi son. I would, I was dressed up the same exact way. I had my lemon drop kids silks on and my jockey pants and my boots and my helmet. And I was a jockey for Halloween eight years in a row. One year, my mom tried to make me be Zorro and we got to the party and I had a nervous breakdown because I wasn't a jockey. So we had to walk back home and I had to dress up as a jockey and all was fine in the world again. Uh, it's it's really, I mean, horse racing and being a jockey is all that I ever really wanted to do with my life. And uh, at the age of 14, it just became really clear that I wasn't going to be a jockey. You know, it just got really big and uh, what I'm doing right now is the closest I can get to being a jockey, you know, being involved with these jockeys careers and helping mapping out their careers to be as successful as, as possible. And I take a lot of pride in it. Uh, it's, it's extremely important to me. It's what, what gets me going every single day. I mean, I, I wake up every day and I, I know I'm logging a lot of hours and people are like, man, how are you doing all this? And, you know, it's a lot of work and all that, but it really, it does not feel like work to me. It's truly, truly what I love and enjoy doing. And I get to be around a bunch of people who love the same thing that I love in horse racing. And as you know, going out to the racetrack, there's nothing better than getting around a group of people and just talking about the horses, you know, and I get to do that every single day. And I really do feel blessed about that. So you 14, you said it's kind of when the dream uh, went away. Died. I grew six inches, dude. It was insane. It was insane. I was forever the smallest kid in my class. Forever. All the way through the eighth grade. I had a time. I have a sister two years younger than me. We were eye to eye. Like, I was so tiny. I was like, for sure going to be a jockey. Everyone would make fun of me and be like, oh, you're little. I was like, yeah, but I'm going to win the Kentucky Derby, so you can go screw off, you know? And uh, <laughs> just freshman year came, and I don't know, just shot up six inches. And it just never stopped. I just kept growing and growing. And now I'm 5'10". My dad's 5'2". My mom, her brother was a jockey. 
her dad was a jockey. They were all tiny. I mean, I don't know what happened. I like my dad a lot, so I don't want to find out. So we'll leave it at that. But <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I just grew a bunch. I don't know. But, it, you know, my mom was super happy about it. She never wanted me to ride horses. You know, she was always scared, of course, seeing my father's injuries in his career and, you know, my uncle and her father, my grandfather, you know, they, they all had injuries throughout their career. And I'm sure no mother wants to see that, you know, no matter how much they know they love it. You know, she was always worried and she just wanted me to stay in school and all that. And uh, so I know I know she's happy about it. Did you, did you, so did you ever, did you start the process? Did you start riding? Did you start riding lessons? Did you start getting yeah. on the equisizer? Were you, did you even start the process or was it just like, Oh, this is what I'm going to do. No, I, I could ride horses. Like I said, my dad would take me out all the time. Uh, I could say I was galloping horses rather slowly at that point. I would go to Alan Jerkins barn and he had a pony barn over at Belmont. I'm not sure if you ever saw that barn. He, his barn is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it was in there right now. It was across from Todd Pletcher, though. And there's, it's right by the kitchen. There's a barn, and there's like a little half-mile gallop track inside the barn for when it freezes in the winter. And when training was over, they'd let me get on the pony, and I'd lope the pony around on that. And then I'd get on the equisizer. I'd be in the jocks room, take my dad's saddle, have my own pair of boots, helmet, whip, and I'd sit myself in front of the TV. And when they broke, I broke. And I'd pick a horse, and when that guy started riding, I'd start riding. And I would do that every single race. And then I'd come home, and I had Equisizer inside the house, and I was getting on that. I mean, it was it was constant. It was nonstop. But I never got to breeze horses or anything like that. you you got to be 16 to do all that. By that time, I was I was too big. Do you ever tell your riders uh, you should have went left-handed? Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, I, I grew up around, my dad's very, very meticulous about riders. You know, uh, it was, it's actually funny when he retired, he was driving himself crazy and he would watch races all the time and he'd be like, Oh, he should have done this. You know, if I was out there, I would have done that. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, we're watching the third race at parks dad, you know? So like, yeah, maybe you would have done that, but you know, that's not the situation here. You know, we got to take it easy, but he's kind of turned me into that. You know, I, I see like the smallest little mistake. I'm like, ah, that could have gone a little bit differently. But I understand it's very in the moment, you know, and uh, also riders are feeling something that we can't see. And that's always something that as an agent or a trainer and, you know, even gamblers, you know, I'm sure it's always something that's hard for us not being in the situation to understand. And uh, honestly, that's why they're out there and they're the professionals. So always have to leave it up to him. But if I am asked, you know, I'll, I'll always throw out my opinion. I'm going to wonder just, I probably wouldn't have 10 riders if I was firing off text right after a race, you know, that'd, that'd be pretty <laughs> rude. But, uh, you know, if, if asked, I, I'll, I'll always be truthful because that's, that's the only way we're both going to get better. You know, it's a team effort. So if I'm asked, I'm going to, I'm going to give my honest opinion. Look, I, I'd imagine that you're not, you know, you're not missing any draws. You're not missing many charts and understanding your, you know, the, the horses that are on the circuits in which your, your riders are. Um, but I would imagine, you know, having a life, you know, going to dinner, hanging out with friends, family, trying to be present in the moment. Um, you know, I know how sometimes it's it's hard for, for a horse player who just has a pick five alive to go to dinner and to, to, to not be on your phone or whatever. How, how do you handle that? Do you watch all of your riders races live as they happen? Or do you allow yourself to miss the race and then catch it when you get home? And, and or what do you do in those situations? Yeah. In a, in a rare situation, I'll, I'll miss the race. That's pretty rare. Uh, honestly, if we're being open here, I probably need to do a better job of being more in the moment and, you know, putting it aside. But, you know, I'm young right now. I don't have a wife and kids and all that. You know, I'm, uh, I'm pretty focused in on what I'm doing right now. And I plan on, I plan on being that way for at least the next, I, I, I try to put a number on it, but I'm, I'm pretty addicted to what I'm doing right now. You know, I don't think I could actually throw a real number at you right now. But, uh, yeah, uh, you know, of course, it, it's probably – more important to try to be in the moment i'd love to go home and try to see my families as much as possible and 
I probably do need to do more of that. But uh, at the moment, I'm real focused on growing this business and making it the best that it can be. I love it. So you're you're watching them live. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, and it's a lot. I mean, how many how many how many mounts do you feel like you have a day on average just throughout all your guys? I mean, it's got to be. It, Golly, it's got to be close to, to on a Saturday, it's got to be close to yeah, 40, right? 50? 40 plus, yeah, yeah. On Saturdays, it gets up to 40 plus, most definitely. Most definitely. How yeah. do you, how do you, org- how do you organize it? Uh, I, my girlfriend actually helps me out a ton, which is awesome. She, she helps me out with all my scheduling. Uh, day before a race happens, like before the race day, she'll send me a list of the post times, the horse's name, the rider's name, all in post time order, not by track order. So Beautiful. I have that to keep track of. I have draw calendars, what days certain tracks are drawing. Uh, my travel schedule. I mean, I've I've already got my flights booked out through May thirty first for twenty twenty four. Wow. So I, I mean, of course, plan you know plans can change, but I essentially know where I'm going to be every single day until May. 31st 2024 as it sits right now yeah that's i mean that's the the draw calendar is tricky right because like you know with with holidays and stuff like you know sometimes they draw a day earlier than they normally do for a certain day and you got to have that all that all laid out um man how how do you know do you just know from your head if uh if did you just know off the top of your head if uh, Diodoro has a 16 non-winners of two? Or do you – how do you keep up with all of that? I write everything down. Everything. I – all day long I'm sitting down writing things down. I would say that it takes up seven hours of my day every single day, writing things down, watching, writing, going through charts, have lists sent to me cipher through the list, write down what I think is important. And Diodoro, you know, a guy who I don't really ride for because, you know, he's, he's got his people that he uses. He's one of those people, who, you know, sticks with the rider and stays there, especially at a meet like Oakland or Fairgrounds. I, I still want to know where he's at. I, I need to know who I'm running against. I need to know what the bar is, what kind of horse I have to try to beat in there. And also if his rider is going to be out of town because they got to go fulfill a stake commitment. I've got a good enough relationship with Robertino where, I'm going to reach out to him in that scenario. So I, I got to be ready for that as well. That's, that's the majority of my day is just writing things down. Right. And understanding. And I guess a lot of your job is also the situation where uh, you got a horse who, you know, you, you're picking between a horse that's dropping from 32 or has been running at the level. You have to make the decision. You have to know who that 32 is. You have to know right. if it's a negative drop. You got to know if it's a drop to win so that you can put your guy in the right spot. Right, for sure. And I mean, you and I both know that just because it's a 32 doesn't mean it was the same as the 32 three weeks ago. You know, maybe in that 32 three weeks ago, the top three horses were claimed out of that race and they weren't out of jail in time for the 32 that just ran in the race that this horse is dropping out of. And that 32 read more like a a 25 or a 20, you know, so is it really a drop? You know, that's, that's the things that I got to be paying attention to. Um, the condition book, I, I, I would have, you know, every, 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 every uh, agent that I've ever been around, they, you know, they carried around with them all the time or, or they have the electronic version on their iPad and they always got to look, Oh, let me see. Let me look. Let me see. Who you, who you, what do you got on? What do you got in the, in the fifth race on blah, 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 blah. Um, do you find it? Do you find it to to that you can really kind of develop an edge in the condition book? Yeah, I mean, if if you have an understanding of conditions, especially you know the racing that we're watching on the big national stages, you know, it's pretty easy to go through those condition books. You know, it's you you got your open thirties, and then you got your non twos, and the, you know the different levels for that. But like some of these charts I work at. Like, for instance, at the fairgrounds, we've got a condition that I absolutely love. It is one of my favorite conditions. It's the 5,000, non-winners of two, non-winners of three life. It works for either one, open company. But if you're a Louisiana bred and you've won a 5,000, non-winners of two, or non-winners of three for the state bred, it doesn't count against your open eligibility. Hmm. You getting that? So I, I rode a horse 
three weeks ago with Ray Lou that had just won a 5,000 non-winners of four life at Delta two weeks prior for Sam Bro. He was eligible for the 5,000 non-winners of three life out of that race at the fairgrounds. And I was going through the Delta charts looking for horses that fit something like that, and I ran into the source. He had won a maiden race. His next race that he won was the 5,000 non-winners of two Louisiana bred. He came back and won the 5,000 non-winners of three Louisiana bred. Then he won a 5,000 non-winners of four open company race. So since he only had the maiden and the 5,000 open company race, those other two Louisiana bred races didn't count against him. So I got them done in the 5,000 non-winners of three open company. Mm. And those are the kinds of things I'm looking for. Did you win? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And the horse that ran second in there was also eligible to win from that Delta race. And I got them to come too. And that one ran second. My other rider was on that horse. There's nothing like an exacta, huh? Yeah. No, that's always nice. Especially, the commission, I don't commission, bet the, I don't the bet races I'm in. Yeah. I don't bet the races I'm in. So it's got to be a commission exacta. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's funny. You don't, I've, you know, I've talked to people about this. I've talked to trainers about it. I've talked to owners about it, breeders, so on and so forth. Like you don't necessarily have to. I took a lot of heat on Twitter and that did it. I said, you know what? I got too much going here. I'm just going to drop it. I had a, I hit a pick five and a pick three at Oakland and I made the dumb mistake of posting it. And the way it worked was I singled rated our superstar in the fifth season and he won. He was like 26 to one. And I caught some crazy stuff early in the last race. I singled a horse named Garhole for Johnny Ortiz. He was the Arkansas bred one X. And I, I I mean, I had so many combinations of it. It it came out to like a total of like $50,000. So I posted the ticket and I got a lot of flack for it because David Cabrera was in that last race and I singled Garhol. Now David rode a 30 to one shot who had just lost a 10 non two Arkansas bread race. And he was going in an allowance race. So I didn't necessarily feel the need to double all my tickets to throw them in, but the racing community on Twitter did not like that. I did not throw him in and I singled the horse that Ray Lou just broke Garhol's maiden, but he wasn't there that day. He went back to the fairgrounds. He was just in town to ride Garhole that day for Johnny. And uh, Ricardo rode him. So I singled him. I was like, this horse isn't going to lose. I know that. You know, I, I, I watched him train. I entered the horse in this race. I fully believe that this horse is not going to lose this race. And he won it. And uh, took a lot of heat for that. So after that, I decided it's probably best not to just bet the races I'm in. Well, so a couple things. One, um, the you know, I know like with with – owners or I'm not owners, but trainers, they can bet their horses. They just can't, they can't bet anything else. Right. They just have to bet their horse to win right. only. Is that illegal? Okay. Yes. What do you have a rule or is there not a rule? No, there's not a rule for jockeys agents. Okay. So, so from, I understand your point, right? What's the point of look, uh, so much of what I've learned about Twitter is why feed the trolls because yeah you're just going to give them what they want and like, and then it drags you into this thing where you feel like you have to respond to them. So I completely understand your, your thinking there. You know, I have friends who call races that won't call, won't bet races that they call, but they're betters, but they won't bet races that they call. Right. It yeah, all makes they don't sense. Want it to influence it. Yeah, of course. Understood. Well, you know, we're, we're but, all, we all get excited when we see our horse at the lead. <laughs> yeah, I just, <laughs> I just don't. On the outside. I, of course. I, I don't look, I, I can see three unhappy people that lose a lot being pissed off, but really you're just, you work your ass off for the information that you have. If, right. if someone wants to know how good gar hole is show up in the morning, right. walk around the backside, talk to Johnny Ortiz. You know what I mean? There's well, the Garhole, information I mean, that you got. He, was, he went on, he went on to win like the, the stake that yeah. year. Yeah, he's a freak, Arkansas bread. Yeah, of Absolute course. Freak, you know, I mean, I wasn't, I was spending already $300 in all of my tickets. I wasn't about to spend 600 to throw in this horse <laughs> that, how he, I mean, just didn't have a shot in the race. I rode the horse in the race because I have a connection with that trainer. And I knew that when we get back to the 10 on two, we're going to be live. 
you know, and I don't, I don't want to lose that amount. And I ride a bunch of horses for this guy, you know, it's just, I'm not going to turn it down. Every, every mount I take realistically, we all know isn't going to win, but if I can justify the mount, I'm going to ride the horse. Now, did I ask to ride Garhol before I took that mount? You know it. Absolutely. I was begging to ride Garhol, but the owner wanted Ricardo and I can completely understand why. Phenomenal jockey, great luck with the ownership and the trainer, but it didn't try, you know, it didn't stop me from trying to get on them. Of course. I mean, look, it's, 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 some people are just so stupid and like, they don't understand how the world works. I have a friend who had a horse um, that they had a crazy offer for um, like a huge offer, like, you know, million, million, millions of dollars offer for the horse. And they're like, well, but what if, we, what if we win that big race coming up? And I'm like, dude, sell the horse. And if you really care that much, then, you know, what about the purse? Then bet $200,000 on the horse to win. You know what I mean? Like you can, right. you, you can have your cake and eat it too. If you really think right. that the horse is going to win, then just take $200,000 and bet the horse to win and take the other million and put it in your pocket. And here you go. It, it, you just, you're in a situation where you didn't have to include the 30 to one shot because if, if it goes well for your rider, you're going to get the commission and it's right. going to be good for your rider. Like, who gives a damn? It's yeah, I, uh, and I would have been shocked if that horse won. <laughs> I, can tell you right. I was shocked that the horse ran fifth. I was like, wow, that horse ran a great fifth, losing by eight lengths. Of course. I mean, it was but that like over said, the head, you know? Like you said, you got a lot You got a lot going, so there's right. no reason to... Uh, right. Just leave to, it alone. To, yeah, there's exactly. There's tracks that I'm not involved at, and, you know, if I've got some free time, I'll, I'll handicap and bet on that. Of course. And that's, and I think that works just as, just as well. Um, let's go back a little bit to, um, to, to, to what I would imagine was probably a pretty special day for you in racing when your dad won, uh, the Derby. Uh, tell me a little bit about what that day was like for you. Incredible. Uh, the, the, the whole story leading into it, you know, you know, do you know how I got them out? Have you ever heard of this? No, I've never heard the story. He was in the kitchen on a Saturday morning at 8.30 with no horse to work first after the break. Career wasn't going that great at the time. Valpone hadn't won the Classic yet. He was just coming off an injury. And he was like, damn, it's 8.30 at Saturday at Belmont. You know, all the jockeys leave. They're all going to work their horses. He's like, I got nothing to work. So his agent calls him. It's like 8.33. Noberto Arroyo missed a work. Barkley tagged that material they really likes. The horse is circling around. Can you go over there and get on him? It's funny, sad. Two two works before his debut. And he worked him and he worked him like 57. And Barkley wanted to go in like a minute. He was like all pissed. He's like, listen, I tried. Do not take me off this horse. This is a freak. And he called me actually because I was in Florida at the time. He was like, How old were you? I was seven. Okay. And he said, I just worked in New York bread. That is incredible. You know, keep an eye on him. You know, he's going to run in two weeks because he knew I was addicted. You know, I mean, he, he, was, he, he called me all the time and told me everything. You know, he knew that this is really what I wanted to do in my life. And uh, he ran off the screen first time out. He went by like 18 lengths. I think it was 16. I think it was 16. And then uh, came back and won the New York Red Stake. And then he came back again in another New York Red Stake. And he only won by head. And he had a breathing problem. So they did a they did a surgery on him and brought him back the next year and you know he was in Florida I think the Holy Bull was his first start I want to say to start off the year and he he broke from the thirteen hole going two turns at Gulfstream which we know unless your name's Barbaro it's just not going to happen and uh, he ran all right he ran like fifth came back ran Louisiana Derby ran third ended up getting bumped up to second because Badge of Silver got disqualified and then he ran in the Wood Memorial against Empire Maker. And, you know, it looked like Jerry Bailey wasn't trying that hard on Empire Maker, but my dad my dad tells me, you know, he knows that my horse was fighting on his outside. You know, Jerry might not have been getting low on him, but he was engaged, you know, with Funny Side. And when my dad came back, he, he told us when he got back in the car that day after the memorial, it's like, we're going to win the Kentucky Derby. I've got that horse. I've got his number. And so I was super excited leading up to it because I was like, my dad's been telling me for the last month, we're winning the Kentucky Derby. We're winning the Kentucky Derby. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget it. He, he got out the car, 
and he put on his jacket and it was like a superhero moment for me. You know, I'm in the back seat and I was sitting right behind him and I get out and I see him put on his suit jacket and the, the twin spires are behind him. And he looked back over his shoulder at me and goes, let's go win the Kentucky Derby. I mean, it gives me chills to think about right now. It was like the most superhero dad moment of my life. I was like, let's go do it. And uh, I think it was the only horse he rode that day too. I'm pretty sure of that. I'd have to, I'd have to go back and look, but if he rode one more, that that's probably it. And uh, man, I, I remember everything about it really. It's like, it's crazy. Cause I was so young, but it's so the whole day, so implemented in my room, just imprinted there. And uh, he came out through the tunnel back then. It's a completely different seating arrangement now, but all the families sat to the left of the tunnel. And I remember him coming through the tunnel and he looked at me and he winked at me. He knew where we were sitting. And I was just like so ready for it. And where our seats were, it was like between the 16th pole and the 8th pole. So I'm watching the race on this little screen and it turns for home and it gave us like that camera angle where like it's in the turn, but it's like they're almost looking at you. It was like a zoomed in NBC footage of it, you know? Yep. And yep. I was sitting on I was sitting on Sonia DeSormo's lap. I grew up best friends with Josh DeSormo, Kent's son. Still to this day, we're in contact. And I was sitting on her lap, and my mom was like, sorry, I'm getting a little, a little emotional about it. Um, My mom was sitting, like, uh, two rows behind me, and I remember seeing that view of him and him turning for home and him being in front. And I looked back at her, and I was like, he's going to win. And uh, just – hysteria from there really just going crazy and uh he ran by us and I took off I left my mom behind he was in front at the 16th pole I was gone and I ran towards the track and got out there to the winter circle I beat her out there she was in the seats crying and she had to get all organized her friends were putting on her hat and her shoes again because she lost it all while cheering and it was it was just an incredible moment it really was and I'll never forget the next day, we woke up and uh, we were staying at the oh, what is it? the Crown Plaza right by the airport is where we were staying. And we went downstairs and the newspaper it said it was on the Courier Journal. No joke, it's funny side. And <laughs> I, I always thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> so yeah, it was incredible. It's uh, it's probably it's probably the best day of my life can't wait to do it myself oh when was the first time that you when you ran over there when was the first time you actually got to your dad right because I'm, I'm imagining that he was on the yeah, horse he had to and... come over on the turf course and all that and then when when he got off the horse he came and he came and embraced us all put the roses over my mom it was a cool moment what were the next two weeks uh like for you it sucked dude because of the uh the fake battery scandal Oh. It was shitty. It was really shitty, dude. Uh, I don't know if I can say shitty on here, but I did. No, I you can't. No, you can't. Okay. No, no, you're good. It was because uh, it happened at the Miami Herald, and I was still in school in Florida. Still going to school, you know, and uh, I think it was a Thursday after they posted that article. They called my dad after he rode the last race at Belmont. And the guy who was asking him all these questions. I mean, it's the Miami Herald. You know what I mean? Somebody at the Miami Herald speaks Spanish. I don't know who, but the person exists, you know? Right. And they were, they were interviewing him in English and they were asking him what was, what was in his hand from a photo they had. Now my dad wore a Q-ray. Have you, have you ever seen those the little metal bracelets? No. Oh no. Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Little metal bracelets for arthritis. Yeah. 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 You know, he had bad arthritis in his wrist because he broke his, I mean, he broke his whole right arm one year in like 92. He had 13 like rods and screws put in it. So he had terrible arthritis from it. So he'd wear a Q-ray to help with the arthritis, to help with the pain. He had days where he couldn't close his hand, you know, I mean, this guy's trying to ride races. So... He thought he was talking about his Q-ray. He said it's secure arthritis. And the guy put it out there as to, it was a device to call outriders. And he, my dad, he was, he was getting all aggravated with all the questions. Like, dude, I don't have any time to talk to you, you know? Just, I got to go. 
and he hung up and the very next day that picture was posted and that I mean the Miami Herald is the biggest paper down there I mean it was I was getting me and my sisters again just brutalized in school and the the school called my mom they were like hey you got to take these kids out of here you know everyone in the school knows everyone's asking these kids you know these kids are overwhelmed and they, they so they let us get pulled out of school and we went up to New York we flew up there on Friday that Saturday, my dad won the Nassau County on a horse named House Party. Very good filly for Alan Jerkins. And he was so excited because, you know, it was the first time he'd won since that article came out. And, you know, New York, that's where all his fan base was. And it's probably the most heartbroken I've ever seen my dad because he got off the horse, took the picture. And when he was walking back, everyone was asking him, where's the machine? Oh. Everyone in the crowd was screaming at him that. And he was just like damn, how could these people think I would do something like that, you know? Because he'd been in New York since 86. You know, he kind of saw it as, you know, his family, his home. He'd been there for, for 18 years. And it, it really took a toll on him, Him, you know, the people thinking that he would do something like that. And, uh, you know, it was really rough leading into it. It made the Preakness really, really tough because, I mean, if he didn't win that race, that's the narrative forever, you know? side was the machine derby horse that's just what it would have been you know we know we, you know this game that would have yeah, been the narrative 100 you know it's, unfortunately you know as close as we all are everyone's in competition and uh that just that, that would have been the spin on it and that's why it was so important you know my family and i were so emotional going into it because we we all knew that you know he he had to win that race or his derby would have been marred forever and uh Fortunately, he did. And yeah, after the wire, he he blew a kiss. He did a a feet sign, like to the the two for the second leg, and then he opened his hand to show everyone he had nothing in his hand. Which is, we have a really cool photo of him with a big smile on his face and his hand wide open. Which is it's probably one of my favorite pictures of him. That's a that's a rough introduction uh, for a young person into like. <laughs> you know, the media and shit being unfair in your life and taking such a, a high moment and it being, you know, someone sprinkling on some nonsense to, to take away from it. I mean, right. that's, that's a young age to learn that lesson. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, you know, that's, that's part of it. You know, that's part of it. It was, uh, it was tough at the time, but we, uh, my mom, she did a great job of getting us all together and, you know, right behind my dad right away and making sure we were there with him because he, he definitely needed his family there. You know, there was a lot of times growing up where we weren't always all together because of school and uh, fortunately the school allowed for that too. So uh, it was, it was a good family moment. You know what I mean? Being able to come together during something like that and then come out on top of it was, was real special to, to do all together. How about the next three weeks? A lot of fun. A lot of fun. After the Preakness, we were like, you know, we're going to go win the Triple Crown. And, uh, I mean, unfortunately, it didn't work out. You know, the rain, the work prior, you know, he just kind of ran off five days before and worked in 57. You know, it was just a, a real strong horse like that. And, unfortunately, it was just too keyed up on, on Belmont Day. But, uh, you know, it's an experience that I'll I'll cherish forever. Uh, it was incredible, the ride of it. It was incredible how long Funnyside stayed around afterwards. Uh, I was lucky enough to where I moved to Kentucky at 18, so I got to see Funnyside all the time. I got to share them with all my friends who I met over there and, you know, explain the story to them. And, you know, they grew to love Funnyside. And unfortunately, we lost them this year. And it really sucked because I was driving up to Saratoga, and I, I just went to go see him in May. And I was driving up to Saratoga and I was going through Lexington. I was like, I should stop and see Funny Side. I was thinking about it. I was like, man, he looked so good the last time I saw him. And they were talking about how great he was doing and all that. I was like, I'll catch him on the way back down. You know, I'll, uh, I'm driving down. I'll just drive through Lexington again and I'll stop it and see him. And unfortunately, he passed away while we were gone due to colic. But uh, such a horses, you know, they'll, they'll do that to you. I mean, that's he, he's someone that'll stick with me forever. You know, and uh, the memories, 
that he gave me and the life that he gave me after. I mean, it's, it's a horse that cemented my dad getting into the Hall of Fame, you know? He, he was a, a life-changing horse. And just the way it all went down, the way he came into our lives and what he did for us, it's just, it was incredible. You, you know, you mentioned when we talked about the Derby about that feeling when they turned for home and, and you know, and, and, and how you sprinted away from your family, basically, by the time you got to the 16th pole, by the time he got to the 16th pole. Um, you know, how, how would you compare that to, uh, you know, as a seven-year-old, how you, or eight-year-old, depending on when you got that phone call from your dad uh, about him being good. How did you handle, because I'm thinking about my son, right? My son's 12. And I'm thinking about how he handles the good moments and I, and, it, and he handles them. They're easier to handle. Um, how did you handle when they turned for home in the Belmont at that age? Do you remember? Do you have any recollection? Of <laughs> I broke down into tears and they put a damn camera on my face on NBC. And now <laughs> when I call like every agent I work with, that photo is what pops up on their phone. And they have me <laughs> saved as, they have me saved as cry baby. That's what Baffert calls me, El Yoron, the crybaby. <laughs> in the Baffert barn. You know how brutal that is? Oh my and god. Bob, can I ride a horse for you? Are you gonna cry <laughs> if I don't put you on there? <laughs> <laughs> Tough. So yeah, no, it, it did suck, of course, but uh looking back on it now, really, what was there to be upset about, you know, in the moment, you know, I wanted to win the triple crown so bad, you know, he won three races that day. So I was like, we went into it feeling pretty good. Oh, even, on, even on Preakness Day, he won the race before the Preakness, the William Schaefer on Windsor Castle. So he, he had a, you know, kind of felt like that again, like, you know, feeling like Preakness Day again, you know, just won the last race going into this, we're about to go in here and win the Belmont. But, uh, he, he, of course, he didn't want to tell me that when it was going down, but he said he knew. The second he got on him, he was just not, not the same, too keyed up, you know, and very nervous out there. So it happens. That's why it's the Triple Crown, right? It's the toughest thing to do in our game. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people. Yeah, I mean, I always tell people, like, the, 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 the losses feel so good because you know how easy it is to lose. Right. I'm sorry. The wins feel, excuse the wins, me. Right. The wins yeah. feel so good because you know how easy it is to lose. Like, like, and, and in fact, like the longer you're in this game, I think the the more, like, I don't want to say jaded you become. It's like, I, I can, I can look at a race and I can find 900 ways that my opinion can go wrong. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, this is, and this I can, this is the only game that you play that if you're right 20% of the time and wrong 80% of the time, you're doing great. Even on the gambler side of it, I mean, that's why we take the odds that we take. Like, I, I don't like making a bet unless I'm getting six to one because right. I know if I'm right 20% of the time, I'm going to get paid at six to one or more. That's that's my outlook on it. Yeah, it's tough, man. And like, and you, you know, the longer you're around, you, you also, I find my, I found myself into a, like the last year, maybe two years or so, just like, a, you know, I've got, I've found myself into this nasty groove. Of that I can make any horse have a chance. Right. And that becomes very like expensive. You know what oh, I mean? Yeah. Where For sure. I think I used to be my, my, like the, I used to be more naive and I used to, I don't want to say more confident, just more, more naive of like, Oh, this horse is going to win. And I used to play like that. And mm -hmm. like, I've, I, I, I realized looking back like this last year, two years, I've started to be a little bit more like, Oh, I can find a way for you know i can i can find a way for uh you know cody's wish to get beat but like back in the day I'd be like, oh, cody's wish can't lose this race you know what i mean right. so right i had to pick six on breeder's cup actually uh kind of doing that with uh elite power i was like he's not gonna lose you know and there's a lot of ways to go in that race yeah and i just kind of i just kind of took that i singled him and i singled idiomatic i'm very lucky there because anyone could have won that race at the 16th pool yeah that and, that, uh, that was a tough one yeah and just kind of connected through i just i just took her because she was i mean i think brad cox is incredible at what he does and she was on a roll you know I and mean, she hasn't lost on the dirt and she had excuses to lose i mean she she proved how strong she was i felt to me in the uh, delaware handicap when she completely went down to her face and though it wasn't that great of a field. How many times do you see a horse like, okay, they go to the front and they win. That's how they do it. Now 
for the first time ever, it might be in fear of competition. They have to come off the pace and they just don't have the same thing. But she yeah. did, you know, so that, that was really my selling point there for me. And uh, just going back to what you're talking about on just landing on one horse, one thing, I, I have a, a buddy I gamble with a lot. His name's uh, Cody Caudill. <clears throat> he's a Bayerano's agent during the Oakland meet. And he's also got Keith Asmussen. He has him full time. And, uh, but we, we've been friends since we were 18. We met each other when I moved to Kentucky over at University of Louisville. And uh, we've been on a trend of trying to find who's going to run third. Mm. And building And just backwheeling it in tries? Yeah. Yeah. Taking something like 20, 30 to one that we think can run third. And it's been working. It's been yeah, really I mean good. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and, it, it, and the other thing about it too is like the one thing that's good about that approach is like you're, you're, you're deviating from what most people are doing. Right. Because, you know, I would say that, you know, 80, I'm just throwing out this number, but just for the sake of this conversation, if 80% of the tickets that are in the trifecta pool are focusing on who's going to win, not who's going to run third. So I think that if you're right. doing something different than that, there is an opportunity <clears throat> to, to, the payouts become very good and you don't yeah. have to put a lot into it for it to happen. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's, yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah. That's one I've liked a lot and it works. I feel like at a place like Saratoga, Keeneland, you know, those big turf fields deep, you know, yeah. Del Mar and other, you know, places like that. It's not really like an everyday thing. You know, you kind of got to get the right size field made in special weights on the grass. It's been really good. What do you do if the how do you how do you handle the horse running second or winning? Tough. <laughs> so do you only uh, so you no, only no, I'll play, play it. no I'll play I'll play like an exacto saver with it or like put the horse in a double if I think it's got a real win shot. But most of the time, I'm thinking thirds like at best, you know, and I'll throw them in an exacto with you know the horse I think can possibly win it. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen someone, I've seen people play like that too. I've seen someone where they'll, they'll play a, you know, say they're like a 15 to one shot, 20 to one shot. They'll right. play a double with the horse singled as it's the win. Right. Mm -hmm. And they'll do that for a smaller amount, but then they'll play the exacto with the horse in second. And then they'll play the trial. Like you're talking about with the horse in third. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, there's, there's a million different ways to. Dub to the double is my favorite. That's my favorite play. The double. Me too. I like it too. Yeah. I, 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 uh, is, as much as I understand what you're saying and, and respect the hustle of my brain doesn't see who's going to run third as clear as it sees who, or who can run third as clear as it sees who can win. And right. so I've always focused on it probably because I learned a lot, playing a lot of pick fours and pick fives and stuff like that. But like, I, I've learned that like the double is, is yeah. And plus the one thing about the double too, is there's no surprises. You can look at the probable. So, you know, you, right. You That's what I like about it. Yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, your bet. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's the thing about the pick five is like a lot of the pick fives and pick sixes, they are, you're hoping. Right. You're you think about it. You know, it, it, so many times in the sequence of a pick five, you're hoping, oh man, I hope, uh, I hope the favorite doesn't win here. You have the favorite. You're like, oh, I hope the favorite doesn't win here. And then it's like, oh, I hope this pays good. Oh, I hope this pays good. Oh, I hope this pays. Oh, you look at the will pays. I hope the will pays. Are, oh, the will pays. Are, you know, you're always hoping in a pick five. I think you take that out of the equation when you play doubles. Yeah, absolutely. Exactus too. I mean, it's yeah. that's another thing I like about those. Uh, I was doing really good at Saratoga this summer playing the early double and exacta in the early races. Hmm. Yeah, more manageable reason, fields. Are, yeah, yeah, manageable fields in the payouts are really good. They weren't they weren't bad. I don't, I don't know what was up with it. I was getting eight to one on things that I was like, well, this is pretty clear. This is how it's going to go down. I'm not really sure why I'm getting eight to one here. Well, I think one reason why, at least if you look and, and traditionally, there you know for for obvious reasons, the early double and the late double are always the biggest pools. Right. Um, I think a lot of like old timers, their brains still see those as the doubles. They don't play like the double from the fourth to the fifth, really. Mm -hmm. So I think that I think there's probably a little bit more meat on the bone earlier um, in the early double and the late double. Yeah, it makes sense. I was I was confused. By it. I really didn't get my head around it, but I was like, I'm just gonna keep doing it. <laughs> I'm just gonna yeah. stick with it. I would. Yeah. I was living like ten minutes away, and like I I wasn't trying to get out to the track until all my draws were done. You know, so like yeah. You know, I I got central time draws, so like sometimes I'm not done till like two o'clock. So I second the windows open, drove over there, got my bed in, drive home, watch it, and then come back out. 
It's the way to do it. That's the yeah, way to do it. Sure. Yeah. As, as, as someone who always has their nose in the condition book, that one question I hinted at earlier, I gave you plenty of time to think about it. What, what are some, what, if, if, if someone gave you, you know, Hey, Jose, I want you to make the condition book at this place. Okay. Think bigger racetrack, not so much a smaller racetrack. Uh, you know, I'm, you know, you know, I'm not, I don't want to single you out here, but think of Keeneland, a Churchill, a Saratoga, a Belmont, a Gulfstream, a Santa Anita, a Del Mar. Um, think those, you know, an Oaklawn. Um, think of those size, you know, big, big handle, things like that. Big horse population or, you know, not as big as we would all like, but or what are some of the things that you wish you would like to see done experimentally? Hmm. There's one thing I'd like to see more of that is starting to be used more. Have you have you paid attention to those auction maiden races? Uh, the one where like have you seen those you, like started? They were either sold or RNA'd. Sometimes it's seventy five. Yes, sometimes it's yes, 50. yes, 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 yes. Yeah, we they haven't do them for the yeah. They do them for the two year olds, which is great. I'd like to see that more for older horses. And and I think I know where you're going to go with this, but what's your uh, what's your what's your logic behind uh, why it would be good for the ecosystem? Uh, I think it would just kind of separate the like that that maiden 50 you know range i feel like every time that you have one of those there's just like one clear four to five favorite three to five favorite that's usually going to get home you know some massive dropper and then the horses that are in that 50 range just don't really have a real shot but it just kind of caps that you know you had to have been purchased for that price you know, it's just, it is what it is. And that's what you have to have been purchased of. And I think it will make a more competitive field for the handy, for the handicapper. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, one you of the other avoid things. that massive dropper, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you also avoid the, the, the $500,000, you know. Right. Yeah. No, yearly. yeah. That's, yeah, exactly. So you, you get that's that. That's the obvious. Too. So yeah. So it, it helps that out. And we're going to have enough horses to fill those races. You know, I mean, maiden special weeks. At, at those tracks they're they're filling they're going like this and i have a feeling this race would fill too and it'd probably knock out that claiming 50 level but i don't really see a problem with that you know people get to yeah, keep their I mean, horses. I don't, how many horses people are, are really, afraid to lose their horse you know yeah how many horses are really trading made in 50 anyways right exactly i mean outside of saratoga the other thing that yeah. i to that idea that to your point that i had heard from uh my friend craig burnick had always talked about is getting horses out of the maiden ranks getting more maidens um getting more maidens broken leads to getting allowance races filled and oh, getting yeah, and helping get stakes races filled and uh and 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 just keeping horses moving rather than having those you know the 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 12 time maiden special weight horse is not really good for the ecosystem oh definitely not definitely not and i mean no you, one's you need, betting the horse you need them to move on You're right exactly no one's betting the horse to win they're not moving on to help fill the next condition. I mean, it's, it's needed. We need, we need horses to win. What about this, 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 you know, uh, they, they love to, and I understand it. I'm not knocking it, but there's the, you know, always the Hong Kong and the, and the other conversations about getting, you know, in, in Europe and getting rid of the claiming system. What are your thoughts as someone who grew up in the game? Do you, do you feel like it's something that we have? it's we have to have it's necessary or do you think that there's something innovative we can do in terms of like a handicap system or a class level system no i, I think the handicapping system, the the claiming system is pretty necessary i really do i mean that's how you get a lot of new people into horse racing i mean when somebody wants to get into the game they don't want to make a massive two-year-old purchase and sit around and wait for the horse to come around and hopefully make it to the track you know in the time that they were hoping for and then see if it actually can run out there. I mean, it makes sense to people. You, you put it in front of them say, hey, this is the horse. This is the kind of race they can go into. This is the purchase price. This is what it's been doing already. Here's the horses it's run against. You know, you can buy this horse out of this race. Hopefully you get them. You can run them in this race in the next condition book. And it's like a three-week turnaround. And then if they like it a lot, they can move up in the game. I, I think the claiming system is a great way to get new owners in. Myself especially young people. Like I have so many young people who like, you know, they see what I'm doing. They don't never really met people in horse racing. Like I went to school with them. And they're like, how do I get into horse racing? You know, I, I've got, you know, $30,000. How can I get into horse racing? 
you know, thirty thousand saved aside. Well, claim a horse for like ten or sixteen thousand and save some money for the bills because you know this is a gamble what you're doing. This is not a guarantee what you're doing is a gamble. So you want to have money aside for in case it doesn't go as you plan. And I really think it's the best way to get someone in. And that's why I love like Canterbury and places like that. They did the uh, the like claiming syndicate ran by the track. I think that's a great idea. You know, they claim a horse, and they try to make it last. When they lose that one, they claim another one. Yeah, I, I really think claiming horses is important for getting the younger generation in because gambling is not taboo anymore. You know, everyone's gambling now. You got you can gamble on sports now pretty much all over. You know, people like gambling, especially the younger generation. They like it. And horse racing is the best odds you can get. And there's no bigger gamble than actually claiming the horse yourself and you owning it. You know, I got a buddy who just claimed a horse uh, last year's first horse and he absolutely loved it and he actually made money on it and he can't wait to get into more. You know, and he's now he's always like looking at claims all the time. He's like, ah, I, I, he's got a trainer down in Florida. He's like, oh, we, we, we got out shook on a horse down here. He was out there at the track <laughs> watching the horse. And he, he lost to this horse that I watched the other day. And I like that horse a lot. And yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's fun. But it's like a low, you know, it's a low, it's a low budget way of getting into something. And then as the person grows themselves, they can get into it more, you know, the more money they make in their other avenues of life. Jose, this has been awesome. Uh, I could keep yeah, going forever, but I, yeah. I, but I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll I'm sure you have a draw coming up somewhere. Yeah, I do. I some place across the uh, across the world. Exactly. I'll let you get ready for that. I appreciate you taking the time. We'll have you on again for sure. Um, awesome. and and good luck in your in your your 978 races that your riders will be running in uh, this week. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was an awesome time, dude. Wow, that was fun. That was fun. I don't think I could do it. He seems like he has to work too hard. It seems like he's up uh, early looking at uh, condition books and backsiding and all of those things. And, uh, and plus I think my wife would kill me if I watched 40 plus races on a, on a Saturday. Don't get me wrong. You know, I've done 15 before a couple of pick fives here and there. Um, my advice to you on that is don't just grab your phone and start watching. The advice is, you have to say before you get to dinner, hey, just wanted to let you know there's a couple of races that are going to go on. Um, I'll try to time one of them very well where I go and watch it in the bathroom so you won't have to sit here. But the other one I might need to watch here at the table. I'll be very discreet. Are you okay with that? Bam. And then usually you, you get a little bit more forgiveness. I want to thank uh, Jose for taking the time. I know it's busy for him. Obviously, you heard him talk about his schedule. So I want to uh, thank him for taking the time. I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing. Uh, for the support. Um, looking forward to another fun year in 2024 with uh, Qatar Racing and everything that they have going on. Um, uh, look, it's the holidays. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Thanks for spending time with us at In The Money Media. If you uh, if you have any ideas, thoughts, feelings, questions, concerns, you know how to share them with us. Uh, we appreciate uh, you listening. We appreciate uh, all the, the time and and uh, that you give to us. And we, we do appreciate that. I want to thank PTF. I want to thank Drew. I want to thank uh, all the behind the scenes in the money ears. want to thank all of the other podcasts that are on the network. Thank you for, uh, for, for your efforts, but most of all, like, you, like I said at, uh, at the top, I want to thank you guys for listening and uh, we'll see you next week. I need to know everything who in the what in the where I need everything. Trust me. I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, there's five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for ghosts, to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them and talk up their body, another one body.